Welcome to NECC Navigate's new podcast, sharing episodes of our latest webinar series sponsored by NYSERDA and MASEC. I'm your host and Navigate Director, Katerina Madeira. In each episode, we hear from leaders across the cleantech industry and explore practical strategies to help expand the capacity of startups, incubators, investors, and corporates. Thank you for joining us and feel free to check out the slides and survey we have in the description. In our second episode, we'll talk about climate change and strategic partnerships. For that, we have with us Ben Mayers from Boston Properties, William Dixon from General Motors, Bala Nagajaran from Equinor Ventures, and Jeff Shepping from Phoenix Revolution. That will be our moderator and panelists. It is now my pleasure to hand over the webinar to Jeff. Thank you, Katarina. It's a pleasure to be uh, here, and thanks to Northeast Clean Energy Council for putting on such an important webinar, and thanks to our guests and those who have tuned in. Today's webinar comes at a crucial point. Uh, we keep thinking that every decade is the most crucial, and we're coming close to the precipice here. Um, the, the timing of this webinar is at a point where we've seen the IPCC report in October that warned us we have 10 to 12 years to take drastic action on the scale of World War II mobilization across every country in order to prevent runaway and catastrophic climate change. People like Greta Thunberg have led uh, the youth movement and are frankly ahead of the adult movement in many ways, and we have a very short window to make dramatic change. On the upside, public opinion is improving, and more and more people realize this is an incredible crisis that needs addressing immediately. Um, but also a lot of people feel like this is a, a depressing issue in a way because we are essentially mortgaging the next generation's future and our own uh, to a large degree uh, while we pretend to care deeply about the next generations. So it's a time of a lot of conflict um, at a time where deep adaptation and extinction rebellion are, are doing more and more. This is a time for us really to dig in and say, what can we do? And most people want to do something. So this webinar is particularly relevant because we have three major, four major sectors really of the economy and a, bunch of, a whole bunch of entrepreneurs on the line uh, and others who really want to figure out how to work together strategically. So how do corporates and startups really work together in a way to combine the best of innovation with the best of scaling at the corporate level? We have Bala Nagazaran from Equinor. Uh, which represents the investment sector, and which is a lot of folks who really want to invest in, in meaningful startups that will make a difference in emissions. We have Ben Myers from Boston Properties who represents the built environment, and buildings represent about 21% of all climate emissions. And then on the transportation side, we have William Dixon from GM, uh, the iHub sector of GM, uh, and obviously transportation is a quite a large sector sector of emissions. So um, myself, I, I do represent a bit the water environment, uh, which uh, desalination, uh, which is a, a lot of energy uh, use, and so we're we're working on that front. So what I'm going to do, just a brief overview, I'll, I'll I'll give a description of what I'm doing, and then turn it over to each of the panelists so they can describe what they're doing with the slides that you'll see on the pop up, and then we'll ask one question of the panelists. And then we'll immediately start looking to questions from you all so that we can address those. And I'll see those on my chat window and we'll bring those to the panelists. Now, let's start first with uh, Ben Myers, please, at Boston Properties. Ben? Sure. Here. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about Boston Properties. We're a public equity REIT, uh, the largest 
owner developer of Class A office space in the in the United States, concentrated in Boston, New York, San Francisco, DC, and Los Angeles. A portfolio of about 50 million square feet. Our strategy is to promote our growth and operations in a sustainable and responsible manner, focusing on the economic, social, and environmental aspects of our activities. And my role as the head of sustainability is to make the business case for our investment in, in climate action, quite frankly, um, it's, uh, to reduce operating costs through energy conservation measures primarily, protect asset value through not only uh, reducing operating costs, but also through adapting um, and becoming climate prepared, and then growing socially responsible investment by communicating our results to try to drive investment in, in, in a responsible manner. So uh, why don't we just talk a little bit more about why we are focused on this issue. Our stakeholders are increasingly interested in sustainability. They want to know how we're performing, what our impact is on environmental and social externalities. Our customers are asking for, for things like green power, high-performance buildings. They have their own sustainability programs and objectives, and we're a large part of their supply chain. Our shareholders, investors are asking more questions about our ESG strategy, environmental social governance strategy, and want to know how we're performing against our ESG goals, some of which I'll talk about in a moment. Communities are becoming more highly regulated around issues of sustainability, including, uh, you know, most notably the, the Climate Mobilization Act, which passed around Earth Day in New York City, which sets hard emissions caps. In, in 2024 and then again in 2034, uh, commercial office buildings. And our employees want to work for a company that's doing well by doing good. And so we believe that our sustainability program makes us a more purposeful organization. Our goals, which you may find interesting um, and certainly influence how we work with startups, include energy, greenhouse gas, water, and waste diversion target um, most of the targets are for 2025 um, finish, but we have a 2008 base year across the board. And noteworthy here is a 39% greenhouse gas intensity reduction with a 45% uh, reduction uh, targeted by 2025. And our uh, emissions pathways uh, primarily include uh, new development, green power, uh, grid improvement, and uh, energy efficiency. So energy efficiency is about 29% of our intensity reduction uh, method. And then uh, new development, developing new buildings that are highly efficient is about 12%. I think it's important to, to note that a lot of our emissions improvement comes from the grid, right? So buildings are using electricity, natural gas, steam, some oil, but really not, not no oil speak of in our, our portfolio. But a lot of the uh, improvement comes from cleaner sources of energy, hydro, uh, wind, wind and solar, obviously, uh, being added to the grid. On the right, I'm just em emphasizing the correlation between site energy intensity and carbon emissions, energy intensities in the, in the orangish red line, and the, and the emissions are in the green line over time. Uh, fairly, it's got a little bit distorted uh, it was loaded in for this presentation. But what you can see is that there's a decoupling of the two as we find new ways to source green power. And I think that's a very important trend for the real estate industry at the moment. 
how can we take the electricity that we're using in our buildings and source it renewably? And you see uh, the, the purple line that continues from 2019 to 2020 is business as usual. And the green line is what we've accomplished with our most recent green power deal that's dropping our uh, projected intensity to 4.0 uh, kilograms per square foot uh, in 2020. Uh, next slide, please. Um, if you're interested in, in working with a company like Boston Properties, just really quickly highlighting some of the initiatives we're focused on here. Uh, imagine this deck will be distributed for the details, but it really comes down to green, le green leasing, green building, energy performance, and then the, the and then health and wellness, which is FitWell. If you're haven't, not familiar with the FitWell rating system, I'd look into that. There's a, this is probably the, the greatest trend in real estate is healthy environments. We spend 90% of our time indoors. It influences our health. And so there's a number of areas where that's evolving. And then we are still in pledging to commit to the Paris Climate Accord and by adopting a science-based target. So aligning our rate of reductions in emissions to what needs to happen globally to keep uh, climate change uh, below two degrees Celsius. If you're interested in, in learning more uh, about our program, um, please check us out. This is our GRES performance. This is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. We're actually submitting our 2018 performance this evening, but so I should be working on at the moment. Uh, this is a benchmark of environmental, social, and governance performance now, including 900 companies globally, public and private. Uh, it's become more important than LEED, quite frankly, or BREAM, or any of the frameworks or ratings you may be familiar with that are at the asset level. This is at the enterprise level, and it captures a range of social and environmental performance metrics. Um, and so if you're not familiar with GREZ, uh, you, should, you should become familiar. Our company ranks in the top 8% of global participants and has the highest GREZ five-star rating. And this, this framework, I believe, is becoming more important to investors who want to invest uh, in responsibly in companies that are making a positive impact on climate issues. And that, that's it from me. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ben. Uh, let's turn it now to Bala, please, at Equinor. Thank you. Um, very happy to be here, and thanks for, uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm part of Equinor's clean energy-focused corporate venture capital team. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about Equinor, um, Equinor is also in a, in a path of transition from being a pure play oil and gas company to a broader energy company. Uh, what do I mean by that? We have uh, in our portfolio, besides our oil and gas assets, we have a multi-gigawatt portfolio in offshore wind uh, and also uh, a few hundred megawatts of utility-scale solar projects. Uh, at, at a corporate level, we invest about half a billion dollars today in, in clean energy assets, uh, and our ambition is to triple, triple that spend over the next five to ten years. So as part of building out our clean energy asset portfolio, the board and the CEO decided that we should have a venture fund. Uh, if you take the next slide, uh, we've always had, a, for the last 15, 20 years, we've had an oil and gas venture, venture fund. Uh, but in 2016, we set up the clean energy-focused venture capital fund. Um, the team is spread across three locations, London, Oslo, and myself being in New York. Our, um, our, we are a $200 million fund. Um, we've, um, we look at uh, startups anywhere from sort of late Series A onwards. Um, we are geography agnostic, so we invest across um, Europe, Asia, and, and North America. 
Um, we our ticket sizes, I would say, the sweet spot is closer to the five million dollar number, but we can go as low as a million and and up to about twenty on on the higher side. Um, we have a we look to take a board or a board observer seat as part of our investment. And the reason we make our investment as a as a corporate fund is for strategic reasons. I.e. What insight can the startup bring back uh, to us, bring to us, and how can we help the startup scale and grow? Um, so, link to that. If you take the next slide, the, the themes that we look for when we when we um, when we evaluate startups is sort of threefold. First is um, can this startup help reduce cost, improve efficiencies on our current operations? Uh, so, as an example, we've looked at um, autonomous drones that can go and inspect our offshore wind turbines. Uh, which will obviously reduce costs and improve efficiencies on, on that front. We also look for startups that can help, that can become the next growth leg for us. Um, we all know that wind and solar are big investable asset classes, and we see storage, uh, particularly battery storage, becoming the next big asset class for us to invest in. Um, we've made a few investments in, in, in battery storage startups to, to pursue this, uh, this, this path. And finally, we also look at what could potentially um, disrupt our core business. And, and there's plenty that is disrupting our, our oil and gas business. Uh, the electrification of the transportation sector is one, one big theme. Uh, we also see distributed generation having a meaningful impact on the wholesale power markets uh, into which our gas, offshore wind, and, and utility-scale solar assets come into play. So we make investments across these three themes uh, based on some of the uh, earlier reference points that I mentioned before. We've deployed about uh, almost about $100 million of the $200 million fund over the last uh, three years. Um, uh, we have a portfolio of, of companies that are spread across a few different themes, as you can see here. Um, I'll touch on a few uh, further down uh, further down the line. Uh, but what we, what we essentially look for, as I mentioned before, is a strategic fit. Uh, we as an investment team have the mandate to make financial returns. Uh, and then we work very closely with our portfolio companies in enabling them to grow and scale uh, Equinor is present in 30-odd countries. Um, we have uh, access to both capital and to relationships across across these countries, um, and, and therefore, we are looking to open doors for our startups. Uh, let me leave it there. Happy to come back uh, when we have questions. Great. Thank you, Bala. Uh, let's turn now to Will, please, at GM, iHub. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. And yeah, excited to participate here. Um, and also for clarification, too, iHub is GM's internal innovation incubator, and I actually work in Boston for General Motors, and we're headquartered in Southeast Michigan, but I work in Boston working with students and startups and potential new partners, and I think we can answer some questions about that later. But I wanted to start here. These pictures represent our mission statement, which changed about two years ago. So you might know GM as, you know, we make and, you know, design, build, um, you know, and sell big cars and trucks, right? Huge quantities of them, almost 10 million this past year. Um, but about a year and a half ago, our mission statement changed away from make the best vehicles, essentially, to zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. So the zero emissions one, what it what it ends up doing, a mission statement, yes, it really brings the company together, especially, and it is very inspiring as an employee to work for a company with such, uh, such a societal uh, mission impact statement now, right? Really concerned with things that affect every human in their day-to-day -day lives. But what it does tactically is it, it ends up opening up other possibilities outside of vehicles, right? If our mission statement isn't to make vehicles, we can use that one in example for the, for the zero emissions one, right? We've stood up a whole group internally that's looking at how do we encourage electric vehicle adoption, 
Vietnam vehicle things, right? Seriously, we would have said, oh, you know, can we discount the vehicle? Can we sell it in a new way through our dealerships? Can we add some new technology into it, product-focused innovation? But we're looking at, you know, partnerships are one very important part of that, and I'll get to that on the next slide. But it also just involves thinking differently about what we're going to invest in, how we're going to view the problem, and what the flexibility is with, that we have to solve it. Um, I wanted to highlight a few examples of partnerships here. So, like I said, we're very flexible in how you kind of delegate authority to some of the different uh, units within General Motors to to really invest and do partnerships that are are meaningful at the end of the day, contribute to the bottom line of that mission statement, right? So. You see in the first one partnering really with a lot of the electric charging providers for the product, right? So that's that's one in the, the one on the top right too is Effectful, which is a construction company to build thousands of fast charging stations in the US. And those are I want to put those in one category at the top there, which is product focused, right? If you think about it again as a startup being able to work with General Motors, or is it really just a different entity, we'll say, of which startups and um, mature companies are within that bucket. It's really a, the first bucket is really in supporting the product exactly, right? So we have the Bolt EV, we have the the Bolt the Bolt uh, hybrid electric vehicle. We've also announced we're we're investing heavily into future portfolios that are uh, zero emissions, so battery electric vehicles. So anything to support that mission is obviously a top concern for us. But if you look at the bottom here, we partnered with DTE to provide 300,000 megawatt hours. Um, that will really power our entire Southeast Michigan footprint um, with our global technical center in Warren, Michigan, and our Detroit-based operations at the Renaissance Center. So this is an example that really a reminder of the scale at which we operate. So outside of just the core supporting the product and mobility space, of which obviously we have a focus in, there's a secondary focus in just we're a huge company. You know, we, we have, you know, we sell almost 10 million vehicles around the globe annually, which requires a pretty massive footprint on manufacturing sites, engineering sites, sales and dealership locations, and a lot of miscellaneous stuff in between. But we just, you know, we employ a lot of people and have a lot of those sites. So if you think about how could I work with General Motors for something, really, you know, our facilities and even, you know, even our IT team internally focus on doing new things to support just the operations of the core business. Again, with that goal of zero emissions, very important through the product. We're also very invested just in upgrading our facilities and stuff. And we actually have a goal that renewable sources of energy are going to account for 100% of our global energy footprint by 2050. So, again, it's, it's pretty inspiring that we kind of set some, some big targets, albeit a few years out, some big targets to focus not only on the core product with the zero emissions, but also just in the facilities with 100% renewables by 2050. So I'll leave it there, and, and we, we, can, we can talk about questions. Great. Thank you very much, Will. Um, those are the corporates. Uh, I'm, one of the, I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, most of the people on the call are entrepreneurs. I'll just briefly say who I am. I only, get a, I only want to take two minutes. I want to get right to the questions for the corporates. Uh, Phoenix Revolution, next slide, please, is a uh, way to do desalination for a lot less energy and cost. We're about 20 to 30, 25 to 35% less energy. Uh, we have a longer membrane life. And what we're trying to do is bring desalination uh, around the world to different places that have not had that usefulness for it because of the high energy, um, high cost of operation. And so what we're doing is we, we, we work in, a, in four different areas. One is the, develop, the developing world where polluted waterways, such as India, uh, there's no way to clean the water. Uh, we're able to, our system uses 
low enough energy that we can use solar power to use reverse osmosis to turn what we're doing now is turning wastewater or sewer water into agricultural water. Uh, that's one of the applications in India. We're also looking at desalination there. In the developed world, we're, we're doing uh, our application is for polluted industrial water. So here in the U.S., we're working with U.S. industrial wastewater and also in the oil and gas sector to clean frack water, which right now is being uh, trucked a long distance and put stuffed in a well and causing earthquakes as well as a lot of emissions from the trucking of it. So we're treating that water on site. We're the only reverse osmosis system that can do that because of the way we process the water. With desalination, we're, a lot of islands and, and other nations, they take a ton of energy uh, in a ship, in oil, and they run their electric uh, facilities and then power use that a, a lot of power to create clean water from the ocean. We can use a lot less energy and then move to solar uh, in these applications. And then there's a lot of uh, security and military applications for uh, remote bases, et cetera. So uh, we're also working in Vietnam uh, with a partner there who wants to help us uh, help clean the water due to rising sea levels. They're having brackish water, so they have to truck water in to deal with their seafood processing. So a bunch of applications trying to reduce emissions. Our goal is to reduce it uh, about 150 to 200 million tons per year, the amount of emissions used in this sector. And, um, but that'll take uh, about 20 to 30 years to do. But um, now I'd like to turn it over to... Um, the panel for the first question that we're going to ask them. And I'd like to ask in the same order we went before. So we'll start with Ben at Boston Properties. Could you, th this group on the line here in the webinar, they really are mostly entrepreneurs. There's some investors, there's some other players. But how, a lot of these folks want to know how do you uh, work with startups? What are you looking for? How do you help them? And at what stage do they need to be? So, what are you looking for? How do you help them? And at what stage do they need to be? So I'll turn it over to Ben, please, at Boston Properties. Yeah, so thanks, Jeff. So first I'd start by saying to, to draw a boundary around my response and say this specifically to drive our sustainability objectives forward, which include greenhouse gas emissions curtailment. So we work with a number of technology companies to do other things related to our operations, but for our greenhouse gas emissions reductions, we're, we're really looking at a few things. First is, you know, technologies that we can implement in our buildings. A good example um, was our Think Light. We, we adopted their LED lamps, cut our use from about 28 watts per fixture down to 8 watts. And it's a, just a really streamlined process of retrofitting fixtures with a, with a plug-in four-foot LED tube. Solved the problem cut our energy intensity 57%, saved a lot of emissions and paid back in 2.2 2 years or so. So a short payback period on, on these initiatives is, is important. Um, tech, ideally, we get below a three-year simple payback period with new technologies. Um, companies like Enernoc, which we identified in, in 2006, they do real-time energy management. That's a performance monitoring platform. They're now, they've now been acquired by NL. For that kind of company, um, when they were in early startup, working with us, we provide a lot of strategic feedback. So we have, we have professionals we, that work directly in our buildings. We actively manage our properties. Those include property managers, uh, legal, engineering, uh, other asset management folks, development, construction. All these people are able to provide feedback directly to the startup to help them refine their product and also help them um, 
market uh, to potential investors. Having a, a company like Boston Properties as a client, I think, has helped a lot of, of startups. Um, and, and then that, so that's one way we help. And the other way, I think, is really our feedback and, and guidance. We refine a lot of products like Enernock and their energy intelligence software now and now. And also a company Measurable, who we work with to compile results um, and uh, disclose our ESG performance to platforms like Gresb and GRI. Uh, Measurable is another startup that we've seen uh, raise capital over the last couple of years. And, and we help them as an as a early adopter, I think, work on their product and refine their product. And uh, it's still still an ongoing uh, relationship and conversation today. So um, th- I think I think we look for startups that have um, some experience working in real estate is, is very important. I think understanding the different perspectives and roles within commercial real estate and being able to sell not only to a sustainability director, but also be able to sell to a engineer in, in the building and be able to speak that language is critically important. I think a lot of people expect that the sustainability guy is going to get you into all the properties, but really, you know, you have to sell first to the, 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 the day-to-day user that's going to benefit um, from whatever, whatever you're selling. Um, and I think that that uh, requires a, a great deal of, of effort to study the industry, understand the roles, and speak the language of, of the folks that operate commercial real estate assets. So. Great. Thank you, Ben, from Boston Properties. Bala at Equinor, you, would you like to take that question as well? How, sure, what kind uh, of companies do you look for? Yeah. So I'm part of the ventures team, so we're the ones who deploy capital investment startups, uh, but that is not just my role in the sense that I'm, I'm, we also act as the eyes and ears for Equinor in terms of looking out at, at startups that could be relevant. Um, so we, we deliver as much insight and value to Equinor by making those introductions between our, for instance, our research and technology team, our operations team, and the startups. Um, so even though the initial discussion might start through the ventures team, uh, as long as I'm able to make that connection, I think I'm uh, I'm, I'm doing a good job for for Equinor. And so we, as I mentioned before, we do um, Series B, late Series A onwards in terms of investments. Uh, but we also run an accelerator program in partnership with Techstars. Uh, this is for much earlier stage um, startups. Um, Techstars, everybody's aware of what Techstars does. We, we run the energy accelerator program with Techstars, uh, invite startups to be part of Equinor. Uh, we, in fact, host them in our offices in Norway. Um, and we've seen quite a few uh, startups make use of that facility um, and, and also establish a relationship through, through the network of both Techstars and Equinor. Uh, in addition, we are a limited partner in, in a couple of venture funds in, in North America and in Europe. These are venture funds that do seed and Series A investments. Um, so even if the, the opportunity is not right for us from an Equino perspective, uh, we would be very happy to make introductions to relevant um, relevant uh, venture funds uh, who might be better suited to invest in, in the earlier life stages of these startups. Um, and then once we invest or have access to these startups, um, it, it sort of resides on, on the investment team to make sure that uh, we, we deliver on the synergies and the, and the benefits that we've outlined when we invested. I'll leave it there. 
Great. Thank you, Bala. And now, uh, Will at, at GMI Hub, same question to you, please. What are you looking for and how do you help them? And uh, what challenges have you found in finding great companies to work with? Sure. I think the I think the earliest kind of uh, misconception, because I work with a lot of very early stage startups, is that we that a, a really big company has kind of the time and mindshare to devote to working right next to you to develop your technology. At the end of the day, there, there's just so many gears moving within the company that the closer your product is to, I can buy one off the shelf, right, or I can buy ten off the shelf. That's going to be the easiest way to work with us. And again, let me distinguish it product versus non-product. In the product space, we do have a ventures team. We have a G GM Ventures focused on growth stage startups, so a little bit more mature. Um, and really something that might give us a product-based competitive advantage, right? So maybe a super unique battery technology or, you know, some sort of tire wheel system that, you know, that is made from, you know, without carbon emissions, right? Maybe something like that is is something that we look at as strategic investments once you're at that growth stage. So a little bit later, maybe series uh, B plus, although no hard rule on that. But then if you look at um, where our iHub team and, you know, like I said, we're an internal incubator for uh, for employee innovation. But I look outside, you know, and the equivalent of employees is students or startups who are growing something on their own. And so in that case, we're really looking for a measurable uh, project we can do. And the biggest thing we can do there is give you some sort of validation that, hey, you're building something, you have this hypothesis of a problem that may or may not exist. We're a big company, right? We probably have that problem. <laughs> and, and if we don't, it might be it might be a good feedback on, you know, pivoting your industry or market. But really focused on a very measurable, uh, you know, defined start and end point project. And again, not necessarily having to be, hey, let us buy it off the shelf. Um but it's got to be something that's relatively robust, right? You think about product, again, to get from I have an idea to build, we'll say even just a plastic a plastic piece in a vehicle. And I want to get all the way from there to, you know, I'm building a million a year and selling them to GM and maybe another OEM. That's a very long, arduous process. And there's, you know, within our kind of pipeline, we have tier one and tier two automotive suppliers that might be easier to work with if you are at that very early stage, because at the end of the day, General Motors is really a vehicle assembler. And so we'll end up, you know, working with those suppliers for them to provide us technology solutions that are de-risked, that are scaled up, that are ready for primetime automotive grade, right? The temperature, vibration, cybersecurity, um, crash safety. There's so many variables. And then even just the manufacturing supply chain scale up, there's just so many variables in any sort of product innovation the later stage you are, the easier it is to work with us, right? And like I said, we have the ventures team that can do that on the capital investment side for product. We also have in my space kind of a project-based um, thing, again, and looking for someone, you know, having it re be relatively mature. And I'll echo, I, I forget uh, who said it, but having empathy for people who are working at the company from the executive level and their mindset all the way down to the engineer or project manager who's going to be working directly with you. Right. Understanding that, you know, they don't want to waste a lot of their time because, you know, it's something that they, they may be basing their career on. I think having that empathy and being ready to understand how those individuals within the company are going to react and be able to work with you. Um, that's a big piece of it. I'll add also just at the scale that we're at. Um, and again, the robustness comes not only in the technology readiness level, but also kind of the mindset to be patient because, to have a, you know, to have a meeting with a key decision maker kind of at the senior executive level with GM, 
that might take two weeks, right? To have multiple meetings might take multiple months, right? So don't definitely at that stage, we don't want to be your only bet. And that's the last theme I wanted to touch on is that we're very happy to say, hey, oh, you know, hey, your company has proven some technology in a, in a prototype stage, some very small scale project. GM is happy to be right behind there and kind of in a growth stage mindset, help you test it out at scale, help you test it out in a big company, right? Um, but it is going to be difficult to work in that early stage idea stage. Um, you know, personally in the Boston area, I mentor with kind of MIT Sandbox and some of the other programs around the area. Um, but that's definitely not a transactional thing. And again, we're happy to provide some of that transparent feedback of how a large company works and operates. Um, yeah, I think the last one too is, is look for programs. So there's, there's something called MIT Solve right now that GM is a sponsor of in which we're looking for solutions that fit under the umbrella of circular economy. Very ambiguous. And MIT Solve is, is a global cloud source, crowdsourcing platform. And you can actually get uh, non-dilutive equity grant funding through that from GM, along with some connections to some of our internal leaders for that potential partnership down the line. So that's, I know that's a, a very, very near-term active example. If you think you do have that product that fits under the circular economy, again, in the product or facility space specifically, go online to MIT Solve and submit that idea, and it'll, it'll get to us to, to help evaluate. Great. Thank you, Will. And uh, so we've been getting some questions from the audience, which is helpful, and I, we have a fair bit of them. But I wanna, I'm want to i going to try to compile the questions and bring them to each speaker to whom they are addressed. So first, uh, Ben at Boston Properties, there have been some questions submitted online uh, asking, how exactly do you heat all of your square footage? Um, how do you guys make the trade-off between upfront costs and long-term environmental savings, which is a key one in this whole sector, right? How do you balance the long-term energy savings. And then the third question would be, uh, there are questions around, if I have a solution for you, HVACR or something else, uh, how do I get in touch and then offer that kind of solution or know that you want it? So if you could touch on those, Ben, that would be great. Okay. Um, well, sounds like a lot of HVAC interest. So, so we'll start with the heating question. We, uh, we heat our buildings using a combination of uh, natural gas-fired Boilers. Um, we use some electric resistance, although there's increasingly less uh, electric resistance. Heating strategy varies on climate zone, uh, building age, and natural gas availability. Uh, but most of it's done through the creation of heating hot water with a gas-fired boiler. Um, the second question is, how do we balance first cost versus um, long-term environmental costs. So every, every one of our uh, new development projects is energy modeled. So we go through an iterative energy modeling process using eQuest, uh, Train, Trace, or Do2, um, some version of energy modeling software. And we do um, sensitivity analysis looking at a variety of ECM's energy conservation measures to determine which will have the greatest um, impact on cost savings, and then we balance that against first cost. And there's no hard and fast rule, but I'd say um, uh, certain measures we probably want to see payback within a 10-year time frame. Um, anything beyond 10 years gets harder to, to justify as a, as a public equity REIT. But that's not to say there aren't other benefits of certain technologies. Um, uh, for example, 
we just did a building with active chilled beams. Um, it was our first building. We now have two more buildings, one that is delivering now, 145 Broadway Street, and another that's under development that will also be chilled beam buildings. So we're seeing that uh, become our standard moving away from variable air volume systems and forced air. Uh, so chill beam buildings are a lot more efficient in cooling, about 40% more efficient. But they provide other benefits, um, space temperature control uh, benefits, as well as acoustics, along with energy savings. So with a lot of these projects, we're looking at secondary benefits, uh, you know, second order of thinking around why we would implement a technology that happens to also have um, energy reduction and carbon intensity reduction. Um, one, one other point I'll make, uh, because I think it's related to both uh, the first and the second question, is this interest in um, net zero carbon buildings, looking at strategies to electrify. And then, uh, so first coming off natural gas, there are a lot of projects coming in our climate zone here in, in Boston and in New York. Uh, a lot more projects on the, on the West Coast, frankly, where the the climate um, lends itself to net zero operation, more mild. You don't have the heating degree days uh, that you have in the northeastern United States. So there, there is an interest in um, electrifying. There's various strategies for that, but you're getting rid of natural gas at the building to do your, your heating, um, which I think is exciting. And we're going to see a lot more um, approaches to that. And I think there's a lot of interest in technologies that support net zero carbon operations within buildings, including uh, energy storage, uh, air source heat pumps, water source heat pumps, hybrid condensers. Um, so that that uh, triple pane glazing, right, uh, and, and and other ways to to make your thermal envelope more high performance. Uh, the last question I believe was on. You know HVAC, how we how we how we how we vet those types of technologies and how we incorporate new technologies. So some of it comes through our own uh, folks. Uh, we're with a company called Inverid right now, which I'd say is close to a startup phase as, as any in this space. And they um, they have a technology that allows you to ramp down outside air by um, scrubbing out return air of carbon dioxide. Um, and it's, it's exciting technology. We're testing it now out in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, that company came directly to us. A lot of other companies come through our engineers, architecture firms we work with. Uh, a recommendation from a, an engineer that's familiar with the technology, has deployed it, has tested it at scale and other buildings is going to have a greater chance of, of making it into our project specifications. Um, so an endorsement from an MEP engineer in particular that works with Boston Properties is probably the primary pathway to adoption of HVAC technologies. It could also come through an engineering firm like like ABLE or, or DTZ or um, uh, one of the others that work inside of our buildings alongside Boston Properties professionals. So there are a lot of different ways these, these come forward, but, but I think an endorsement from an MEP engineer on a new HVAC uh, technology would be the, the strongest uh, strongest possible um, recommendation we would see. 
Thank you, Ben. And, and just before I move um, to Will, Ben, an MEP engineer, how would anyone, if they're on the line and have a solution, how would they find one of those that works with you? Um, well, we work with a lot of the big ones. Uh, one of the forums for, for this is, is ASHRAE. So I would recommend if you're looking to network with MEP engineers, look, look to groups that um, are similar or ASHRAE itself. They're, they have an annual conference. They have many meetups in cities across the country. And it's the okay, yeah, you're gonna You're going to catch me on the acronym. That's all right. Yeah, ASHRAE. Yeah, minimum standards. Yeah, the internet. Yeah. It's yeah, people can check out ASHRE. ASHRE, right? ASHRAE, yes. RAE. Great. Thank you. Um, questions now turning to GM and Will. Um, Will, the questions that have come to you are generally uh, one, if, if you can write these down or keep track. One, would you be interested in two and three wheel EVs in South Asia, which is a $2 billion market, according to the folks here? So, two or three wheel EVs in Asia. Could you talk a little bit about your roadmap uh, for vehicle-to-grid capabilities for your EVs? And last, a similar question is, uh, if, you ha if someone has a product that would be useful to GM, what is the right department or technical discussion and evaluation process? Um, you able to track all those, Will? Yes, sir. I, th I think I got them all typed out. <laughs> Great. Thank um, you. I'll help you. Too. Yeah. Please. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Good, good, good diversity of questions, though. Um, yeah, so two, two or three-wheeled EVs in South Asia. We actually did a pilot project, and it would have been like six or seven years ago now. Um, I think I'm going to butcher the name. I forget the name, but if you, if you Google around, you should be able to find we'd made kind of functional concept vehicles for it. Um, in things in new markets, it, it, so I think about it as like what are, the, what are the, the things that are different from what we do today, Right. And everything that's different from our current operating process is just going to be, a, you know, it's going to raise that barrier to partnership or maybe the timeline of discussion. It's going to push it out. Um, so there's multiple wheeled EVs in South Asia, you know, right now. And I guess it's also the context of the discussion. So we do sell a lot of vehicles in China specifically, um, but those are still, you know, relatively traditional four-wheeled passenger vehicles, right? Um and I'll say, I guess that I guess because I want to like go off on a uh, <clears throat> huge discussion about it, but I think the big thing is try to predict what our roadmap is going to be. So if you see that you know we've recently released some concept vehicles or concept art or announcements about hey we're really looking at new ways for mobility in a specific region, that's going to be your best signal to the public to say hey. If you have a solution for this area, we're kind of hinting that we're interested, right? And I don't think we've made that signal with that with that specific um, thought process. I'll also look at, say look at the context of, um, and again going back to the empathy, you know, a key thing in working with any big company is the empathy for what people are going through. Um, you know, general, you know, we we had some, uh, we had about ten or ten or twelve thousand um, engineers and executives leave the company last December January. Um, so you might you might imagine that the focus of the company right now is really not on maybe crazier new projects as compared to our core portfolio, but maybe something a little more execution focused. So that's all I'll say on on the first one. 
But again, it's, it goes on to the robustness level, right? So if you've, you know, if you've mapped out the market, you have the connections with the local government, all you're looking for is capital and you kind of have a, a, a surefire win, you know, that's interesting to us, right? But if you, if you're like, Hey, I got this idea. General Motors would love it. You know, again, probably not ready for that conversation. Uh, the second question was the roadmap for vehicle to grid. So I can't comment on any future product things. I will just say that the scale at which we operate, um, it really makes us be relatively risk averse into rolling new things out because we take big, giant steps relatively slowly because at the scale we operate, we want to do it you know, once, maybe twice and do it right, as opposed to how a startup might operate where you might pivot a million times, right? So with that in context, the vehicle to grid thing, I would keep an eye, and I know we've announced some partnerships. Um, you probably do some research on different positions for GM that exist dealing with lo- you know, local and federal governments, you know, some of the partnerships with these companies. Um, yeah, I guess probably can answer more on that with the context of the question, the vehicle to grid. And then can you repeat the third question? I don't know if I typed that one down correctly. Yeah, no, sure. Well, the last question was, you know, how does someone get in touch with you, uh, with you guys, which you've touched on a little bit here? Um, what's, the, what's the best way to do that? Uh, but I'll also just throw in, since I have your attention for one last question, is someone came in and said, we specialize in silicon carbide power converters for fast chargers. Is that something of interest? Sure. Yeah. So, so the best, the, again, the best, the best way is going to be kind of an ambiguous, just shotgun blast at us, to be honest, we don't have a super formalized way of wor- working with early stage companies. So I'd say a few pathways are, Hey, go through one of our tier one suppliers, especially the example you mentioned, right? A very specific technology example of a, what would end up being, I assume you're talking about, uh, potentially an on-vehicle uh, component to a larger a vehicle, assembled vehicle pro- uh, product. You know, if, if the technology readiness is pretty far is, is pretty far along, you know, I would I would try to approach a tier one supplier, um, and you can find lists of those online in the automotive landscape. Um, but other than that, people like myself, we have. So I, I'm I'm, in, I'm happy to sh- I'm happy if you know I'm sure Katarina can share my contact information if anyone has specific technology that's relatively robust. Happy to take a look at it and connect you to someone in our, you know, maybe it's our advanced engineering or R&D department if it's a tech-focused innovation. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, at the end of the day, we're, we are more than willing to entertain conversations. But like I said, you got to find the right person, and it would be myself. We have someone in Toronto and someone else in Silicon Valley, so a pretty small group that's actively looking outside of our traditional supply base. But other than that, um, you know, if, if you happen to run into a, a GM engineer in the right thing or you find someone on LinkedIn, um, there's really nothing we can do to stop you from reaching out. Okay, thank you. Um, and now I'll turn to Bala at Equinor. Uh, Bala, the, the question's directed in your g- general direction as an investor, generally center around, um, you know, is there any help for pre-Series A, uh, is there any, are there any connections or, you know, help that you guys can provide companies or advice uh, to help them get there uh, in advance and maybe to start developing a relationship over time? And then the second question, Bala, would be, do you typically look uh, for equity? Do you ever help with, do you ever do buyouts or others connecting with strategic uh, buyers? 
Thank you for both. Um, first, on pre-Series A, uh, we run a program called Loop. Uh, Loop is a means by which we provide debt to startups, and we they, they repay the debt as using a royalty mechanism, which is a percentage of sales. So effectively, they don't get diluted. Uh, we believe in the product enough to help them with, with cash, which will help them to launch the product. Um, and, and then we retain some form of rights warrants to participate in their equity raise subsequently. So uh, th that is a program that we've used quite effectively in our oil and gas ventures team. And we are looking to roll that out in our clean energy ventures team as well. Uh, so that could be, that could be a potential solution there. Um, on buyouts, um, we, we're still fairly early in terms of framing our strategy. Um, and as one of the other speakers mentioned, with large corporates, we, we make large, bold steps. Uh, until then, it sort of stays under the radar for, for, a, for a while. Um, so ventures is one of the means by which we get to understand different businesses, different parts of the value chains, uh, and then make a recommendation to our strategy, uh, strategy teams in terms of where we should allocate our capital. And so at this time, whatever we look through the ventures is, is a means for us to uh, learn the business, understand, understand the value chains, uh, and not necessarily looking at sort of buyouts as yet. Great. Thank you, Bala. So we're coming to the end of our time, and I'll just go one more time since I don't see uh, – I think we've answered a fair number of the questions. For those who have submitted questions that are not have not been answered, just know that Katarina – is going to see the questions and be able to address them. And if the panelists uh, from corporate side are open to being contacted directly, that question can be directed to them, or we can, they'll, Katerina will be able to connect you with the panelists directly. So um, we can obviously can't get to all the questions, but I've tried to consolidate them. And then for the last round here to people uh, on the panel, we'd love to just go uh, start with you, Ben, at Boston Properties, but to each of you, if you could just give your best case success story that you've had with a startup partnering uh, as a corporate, or Bala, in your case, as your, your best case of finding an early stage company and really growing it. Um, and then, you know, I think, Will, you discussed a little bit how GM has struggled to find some startups, and maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more on what you'd like to see change uh, that would help you find more great startups. Um, each panelist has really only about a minute, so please keep your answers short, and I'll turn it to Katerina to close us out. Thank you. Let's start, please, uh, with Ben, your case study. I think the longest success story was was Enernock now and now, um, and that that's probably our our best example uh, where we've saved just in the last two years nine hundred fifteen thousand dollars in energy expenses through you know setting back our buildings, operating them more efficiently, and that's the long term relationship. I see that as the strongest relationship we've had through the life. Fan of, of a company from very early to um, multiple rounds to acquisition, um, and so that 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 I would point out as a success. And another another success that's more recent um, in its in its generation was our relationship with STEM, uh, the energy uh, storage developer on the West Coast, where we uh, delivered a project in Santa Monica that's the largest lithium-ion battery storage project of its type at a, a property called Colorado Center. Um, that system is going to cut our peak load, saving uh, significant operating costs. Also, it's, it's a great um, PR move. It, it helps us make the grid more resilient, and it will help us uh, eventually store uh, solar energy we produce on site, is my hope. And And it was just a very successful relationship working with STEM 
through contract negotiation, a new form um, that, that I think is, is an understated part of all this, the, the legal uh, hurdles one must overcome uh, to, to execute new forms of agreement, uh, especially when there's finance involved and, and large investment um, and, and risk, right? Doing something new uh, like, like lithium ion energy storage. So uh, yeah, I, we got through it all and, and delivered successfully, and I, I'm very happy with that process and our relationship with them. Great. Thank you, Ben. Fala, uh, very briefly, your biggest success? And- yep. Uh, we recently, well, last year, we invested in a company called Phosphorex, which is based in Germany. They, have, uh, they manufacture sensors which go on wind turbines to detect wear and tear and de-icing. Uh, they primarily sell to the wind OEMs, the manufacturers, but we've been working very closely with them to understand uh, how, the, how their software and the systems can, can help manage our own assets uh, that, we, that we have in the offshore wind sector. Great. Thank you, Bala. And Will from GM, how, what, yeah, where have you yeah, struggled? Like, like, yeah. Sure. I think, I think one of the things you struggle with is, is really being clear about the types of startups that we're willing to work with. It's kind of been like, yes, technically we're open to everything, but it depends on kind of the, the uniqueness of it. And it's tough too. I mean, GM is so large and works on so many projects. Almost any startup could potentially work with us, right? Um, but I think we're trying to focus on making it clear that, hey, you know, if you can support product-based innovation, it's got to be pretty robust. And if you're looking at other things, that's an option as well. But again, really tr- try to make sure you have a really robust start-end date partnership in mind. Um, before you come talk to us. Great. Thank you so much, Will. And um, so this is, I'm going to close it out and turn it over to Katarina to close the webinar. But I just would say that Navigate, uh, NECEC, their Navigate program, uh, I've seen it from many sides. And we were just there as a company, Phoenix Revolution, last week and made a lot of great connections in New York. Uh, I know there's a Boston event as well. Uh, We literally had targeted conversations with corporates who were interested in what we were doing. And so we had a speed dating session that was very productive all day. Uh, We probably made five or six very good connections. So I'd encourage all the entrepreneurs here to use Navigate Northeast and just be in touch with them because they're incredibly good at connecting you to the corporate world. So uh, thanks to them for having this uh, webinar. And I'll turn it over to you, Katarina, to close out. Thank you very much for the kind words, Jeff. And uh, thank you, Ben, Bala, and Will for, for this fantastic webinar. Thank you to all of you for joining us today in the audience. We hope this was a valuable session for everyone and again to our invaluable partners. Thank you so much for listening and thank you again to NYSERDA and MASCC for making this series possible. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. It would be great if you could please provide us your feedback. You'll find a very brief survey in the podcast description. You can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts and check us on NECEC's YouTube channel as well. We look forward to sharing your upcoming 2020 series. Stay tuned at NECEC.org. Thank you.